0: Hello, and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C 130 Hercules aircraft. Today, we're taking a look at two different topics, albeit in the same era. Firstly, we'll touch on airdrop development in the 1965 75 era, and then humanitarian assistance disaster relief and how C 130 supported Australia's near region in that same era. I'm your host, Bill Kouroulakis. Some of you know me as K9 i served over 30 years in the Canadian Air Force and the Royal Australian Air Force, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast series is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in 2024. We'll save the operations for later and start with some discussion about airborne operations development in the 1965-75 era. Australia disbanded its mass airborne operations capability after World War II. Although there was occasional interest in reinvigorating that capability, aside from special forces, Australia didn't have an airborne operations unit in the 1960s or early 1970s. But the Special Air Services Regiment, or SASR, did require some airborne operations capability from the RAF. Thus, 36 Squadron maintained its core tactical air mobility skills through that period, albeit on an ad hoc basis, because there wasn't a dedicated tactical training conversion course in that era. The basic training requirements for airborne operations were low-level flight, formation flight, airdrop of many types, and threat avoidance. There were other niche elements that became more important in the 1980s and 1990s such as escape and evasion, secure communications, night vision goggle use, and some special operation techniques. A simple example of relevant training took place on the 10th of October 1969. It was a unique opportunity that presented itself when all 12 C-130As were available in the local area, so then commanding officer of 36th Squadron, Wing Commander Jackson, seized that moment and launched all 12 C-130As. The event was captured by someone on the ground when the formation overflew RAF Richmond in a rectangular pattern. On the airdrop side of the equation, Air Mobility Training and Development Unit was pretty busy. One of the challenges they took upon themselves was to increase the number of CDS or container delivery system bundles that could be dropped by a single Hercules, and we heard Shorty Heffernan talk about that a few episodes ago. A 16-bundle load was the generally accepted limit, due to the restraint systems being used, and the keys to getting it up to 24 CDS bundles, which was the most a Herc had floor space for, was to redesign the restraint system, both fore and aft, and to find a way to extend the gates-cutting mechanism so other bundles could be put on the ramp as well. As a reminder, these bundles were held in place by a strap while the aircraft flew with a slight nose-up attitude, and that strap had to be cut mechanically, and then the bundles would simply roll off the ramp. Each had a parachute that was attached to a static line on the aircraft, and as the load fell away from the airplane, that static line pulled out the parachute, which was normally a 64-foot diameter chute. Don Stott, Bob Heffernan, Al Wilcox, and AMTDU engineers put their minds to this problem, and they invented the AMTDU release gate, which enabled the entire cargo compartments to hold CDS bundles all the way up to the end of the ramp. This release mechanism was successfully trialed in March 1971, and in July of 1971, Don Stott flew 213 and dropped 35,000 pounds of cargo, which was comprised of 24 CDS bundles in a single pass, and at the time, that was a world record. All the bundles were out of the aircraft within three seconds and this load was incorporated into 36-squadron tactics until about 1978 when the H model came along. The last 24-bundle drop took place on the 28th of July 1978 when USAF exchange pilot Captain Mike Ashmore dropped bundles rigged with vent pull-down parachutes, which enabled a quicker parachute opening and more accurate drops. AMTDU was also developing other loads in that era. They sought to expand their knowledge on heavyweight drops in particular, and they trialled several heavy drops, including trucks weighing around 15,000 pounds, and they required something like six G11A chutes, and G11s are 100-foot diameter parachutes. And in 1968, they dropped a 25,000-pound caterpillar dozer, which was the heaviest single airdropped object in Australia to that date. In addition to those heavy drops, AMTDU tried doing some high-velocity CDS bundles in 1971, and they dropped CDS bundles from 10,000 feet, using a system which deployed the parachute at 1,000 feet. But apparently there were quite a few malfunctions, and that trial ceased. In that era, Australia was using U.S.-designed and manufactured parachutes. But in mid-1971, in what was probably a prescient move, AMTDU trialed some plastic parachutes in order to save costs. The trials were promising, but the plastic parachutes never went into production. Of course, those who flew in Afghanistan would have seen low cost plastic parachutes produced by the U.S., which were widely used throughout that theater in the 2000s and 2010s. The airborne operations scene changed in 1974. Commanding Officer 6RER, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Hammett, who retired as a brigadier, began building a company-sized regular infantry airborne capability. He had no direction to do so, but Army let him carry on with what was considered a capability demonstration. So in September 1974, D. Company of 6RAR became involved in exercise strike master, and they jumped 64 paratroopers out of a C-130A as part of a mass airdrop capability demonstration. This drop was supported by AMTDU trials to determine how to retrieve a paratrooper if one was hung up outside the aircraft. And for those that are not familiar, hung up means dangling outside the airplane on the static line. And that would happen if the static line didn't pull the out for some reason or got tangled around the paratrooper's body somehow. Although it's a rare event, it does happen. While I was on exchange in the United States, I once met an infantryman who ended up being hung up outside the aircraft, and he said he'd never been so battered and bruised because as he was dangling on the end of the static line, he was getting beat up against the side of the airplane in the airflow. In the U.S., they cut away those jumpers as long as the jumper demonstrates that they're conscious, with the expectation that the paratrooper will then pull their reserve chute. But in Australia, the procedure was to pull the paratrooper back into the airplane. So we had to have procedures to do that. And AMTDU trialed this on the 16th of November 1971 using a dummy, who they called Trooper Wood. How innovative was that? And the dummy was retrieved from outside of C-130A through the starboard paratroop door using the aircraft's retrieval winch and main winch. And that led to new operating procedures for the retrieval of hung-up parachutists. That whole iteration was followed by the first-ever RAF Freefall Night Air Drop, which dropped a regular Army troop from 10,000 feet in October 1974, and that airplane was 216 flown by Flight Lieutenant Brian B.D.H. Harris, who later became a group captain. Although these were promising starting points, a regular infantry airborne capability was not formally established until the early 1980s. Despite the lack of formal direction, 36 Squadron and 6 RAR began training together in the mid-1970s, and thus they sowed the seeds for a much bigger capability to come. You'll note that I didn't mention 37 Squadron anywhere in there, and although the E-model was perfectly capable of being used to conduct airborne operations, the crews weren't trained for it. Eventually, 37 Squadron did do some airborne operations training, and we'll cover that in a future episode okay let's do a switcheroo here and let's talk about humanitarian assistance disaster relief operations and what we'll do is we'll cover a few different missions today so it's probably a good time to quickly cover off on what's meant by that term and what c-130s did for hadr operations so the australian defense force is often called upon to respond in support of the department of foreign affairs and trade in an international setting Australia's state emergencies in a domestic setting to provide humanitarian assistance disaster relief in times of crisis. The terms humanitarian assistance and disaster relief are almost interchangeable. A humanitarian assistance operation is defined as an operation specifically mounted to alleviate human suffering in an area where the civil actors normally responsible for doing so are unable or unwilling to adequately support the population. And disaster relief is defined as goods and services provided to meet the immediate needs of disaster affected communities. From a C-130 perspective, there's not a lot of difference in those two missions, and so it's dubbed HADR operations. These operations often take place in uncertain circumstances and under immense pressure to save lives and ameliorate suffering as quickly as possible. C-130s have often been the first ADF element to arrive on an HADR scene, bringing in air movements equipment and specialists along with relief supplies. This requires experienced crews and experienced commanders to manage the situation, Given the frequency with which C-130s are involved in HADR operations, quite often an air mobility specialist is selected to lead those missions, particularly in the critical first few days. HADR missions are accomplished using air logistics support procedures, in other words, moving cargo and people into a benign environment, but sometimes there are unique requirements. For example, quite often the airfield that services the damaged area is unable to support normal airport operations, so air mobility has to bring in its own forklifts, cargo handlers, passenger handlers, power, communications, medical staff, and sometimes food and fuel for their own staff, let alone for the people they're rescuing or helping out. Additionally, the airfield supplying the damaged area with goods and services could be quite chaotic. Air mobility crews usually face some pretty long days, and sometimes those crews had to make on-the-spot decisions about who or what got loaded onto their aircraft. An HADR mission will probably last as long as DFAT wants the military to support the country or the area in need, or emergency services need the military to support. While those C-130s and air movements and support personnel are on the job, they will be working flat out to deliver as much as they can in the time frame that they have. So that's a bit of a snapshot regarding the context behind what an HADR is and some of the factors that play into HADR operations. Now we'll look at some regional support that occurred during the 1965 to 75 period. And it's hard to believe that with all the activity happening in Southeast Asia during that decade, that C-130s had any time for anything else, but they did indeed get involved in supporting other nations. The first one we'll look at is some fence mending that happened between Australia and Indonesia in the aftermath of Konfrontasi. There were a series of Australian Defence Force mapping and charting operations conducted in Indonesia to facilitate infrastructure planning for hydroelectric development, irrigation projects, and transmigration schemes, and some of those operations included moving helicopters, so from, say, Five Squadron to places like Pelembang on the island of Sumatra. As part of operations Gating 2, Mandau, Patamura, Senderwasi, there were several of them that happened in the 60s and 70s. And c one hundred thirties supported the Army in their surveying operations and mapping operations by flying several air logistics support missions, delivering vehicles, helicopters, fuel, technical stores, etc., C-130s also played a role in the aftermath of the tragedy that befell one of those operations, which was Operation Senderwasi, on the 29th of July, 1977. In that incident, Flight Lieutenant Ralph Taylor of 9 Squadron was killed during the crash of his Iroquois helicopter, which was A2-379. They had been ferrying geo equipment and operators near the bellium Valley and Erie and Jaya. The helicopter flew into a cloud, and the helicopter crashed through foliage at about 10,000 feet above mean sea level, and the helicopter was flipped on its side by a branch that pierced the hull. Immediately after that accident, it just so happened that Flight Lieutenant John Pixie Pickett and his crew were on task in A-97-207, and they located the general area of the crash sites by homing in on a personal locator beacon the survivors had activated but Pixie's crew were unable to visually identify the site due to the bad weather. The surviving helicopter crew members and passengers were rescued the next day by Army helicopters, and that search and rescue effort was also supported by 167, which was captained by Flight Lieutenant Dave Woofy Armstrong, who took another helicopter up to the area. C-130 involvement in that incident didn't end there. 209 was flown up by Flight Lieutenant Ian Mallett to deliver Special Air Service Regiment troops who were then tasked to destroy the helicopter and that same C-130 did an aeromedical evacuation with the four patients from the crash. On the eastern side of the island, C-130s regularly supported Papua New Guinea by conducting training in the highlands. Doing this support on training hours was beneficial for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade because they could not afford the full cost recovery bill defense would have levied on them for the many tasks that C-130s did in support of PNG, including HADR missions. Some of the other tasks C-130 supported in Papua New Guinea were Australian Army roadworks in the highlands, cargo moves to local towns, moving the Papua New Guinea police and military units around, particularly during election supports and for riots control. Along with those ad hoc missions in PNG, there were a few dedicated HADR operations to respond to disasters. One of those operations was sparked up because the Hong Kong flu spread through the highlands during the third quarter of 1969. Over a thousand people died from that flu, and in October 1969, the ADF and PNG planned a disaster relief mission to deliver medical support to the many sick people. The operation was called Operation Enza, which was short for Influenza, and on that operation, ADF helicopters and caribou's were deployed along with a 90-bed hospital to Mendy. Some of that went up by C-130A. In over a six-week-long operation, C-130As supported the hospital and the 14 medical patrols which were ranging through Papua New Guinea to give penicillin injections to the sick people. Three years later, in mid-1972, a major crop failure led to famine in the same highlands area. Again, the ADF came to the rescue, caribou's and Iroquois helicopters went to PNG, and Herc support came in the form of two C-130A loads of seed potatoes, which were sourced from Mariba, Queensland. That first load of potatoes came by truck to Cairns, and the crews had very little air movement support, so everyone pitched in to load sacks of potatoes into the C-130, and they were delivered to Mount Hagen by Flight Lieutenant Don Stott on the 4th of September 1972. And believe it or not, at the destination, again, there was no cargo handling equipment, so the locals brought the inmates down from the local jail to unload the aircraft. Over the next 10 weeks, 36 Squadron flew 40 tons of seed potatoes each week to the highlands. Some of the other tasks C-130s flew during that famine included flying rice and canned goods from Wewak, Ley, and Port Moresby to the highlands, mainly to Mendy, but also to Mount Hagen and Garoka. In addition to moving food, 36 squadron flew drums of fuel to Mendy to keep the helicopters flying, and on return legs they would carry the empty fuel drums. And the last load of potatoes was delivered in January 1973. And I think we'll end the stories about HADR in the near region there. I've got family friends up in Mariba, and they're farmers, and I'll say hi to Chris and Mari and I hope their lychee crop is going well this year, Mariba has a great reputation as a farming community, and I wonder how many of the locals know about their contribution from 50 years ago. That's a wrap for today. Next week we're going to cover off on Flood and Cyclone HADR operations in Australia in the early 1970s, and we'll do that with guest retired Warrant Officer Tony Ryan, and that'll cover off on Cyclone Tracy as well. Thanks for listening, and if you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse podcast, and if you've got time, give the podcast a rating. Thanks for listening.